0: So good morning, everybody. Good morning, Abba. You're on Voices from the Front Lines. Wake up and smell the revolution. We're going to have a great show this morning. Again, big thanks to Channing Martinez and Julian Lamb, who produce everything. We're a team. We're excited. We're going to have a great voice from the past and present, Frankie Adams Johnson, one of the great veterans of the civil rights movement, who's going to talk about her work in Mississippi and with the Black Panther Party. We're we'll going to have an interview and conversation with Channing Martinez, who many of you know is the co-host, you know is director of organizing, and he's going to talk a lot about Belize and Garifuna and his traditions and what led him to become a revolutionary. We're going to have Barbara Lott Holland on the block party and social media. We're going to sing along with the Five Satins and the Still of the Night, and we're going to dance to ABBA with Dancing Queen. So good morning, wake up. And let's stay together. So everybody, this Eric Mann. Welcome back to Voices from the Frontline's Wake Up and Smell the Revolution, the morning show, 8 a.m., every Tuesday. We have an amazing gift for you. It's an interview we did in 2014 with Frankie Adams Johnson, who you'll learn was a major figure in the civil rights movement. And one thing I've learned is, given the costs of death and beatings, virtually everybody in the civil rights movement was a leader and an amazing person. But this is a lot about black women's leadership. It's a lot about Mississippi. It's a lot about asking you out there to listen to every word she says, because it's a tutorial on so many questions about women's leadership the greatness of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the greatness of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, the significance of the murder of Emmett Till, the significance of the murder of Medgar Evers, with whom she worked very closely, and the significance of the revolutionary journey, which I'm still on, and so is she. It's hard to understand the choices we made. I got involved in 1964 with the Congress of Racial Equality on in South Central today, continuing that work with the Labor Community Strategy Center at our Strategy of the Soul Movement Center. I am shaped by those histories, and I'm shaped by the great leaders, George Wiley, Herb Callender, Joyce Ware at CORE, Bob Moses, the great Fannie Lou Hamer, who was lucky enough to give us a teaching in Newark. So many great people, James Foreman, and, Let's listen to Frankie Adams Johnson. Now, the particular things I'd like you to listen for is for those of you who would like to be revolutionaries today, listen to the clarity of her formulations, the clarity of her consciousness, the positive experience she had as a black woman with men in SNCC and men in the Panthers, contrary to a lot of stereotypes and, frankly, slander developed by the FBI and the CIA and listen to, 50 years later, the brilliance of her mind and the clarity of her political message. I was so honored. I want to thank Julian Lamb, with whom we continue to work at the Strategy Center. Catherine Murphy, the really fine filmmaker whose film maestro is so important. William Sabatine, Afro-Cuban, who Catherine got us to work with, who just has a new film out called Lazaro and the Shark about the kunga competitions in Cuba. So in 2014, 50 years later, the four of us as a team videoed and audioed, and this editing was done by Julian Lamb. The audio editing is very important. So with this, really enjoy Frankie Adams Johnson. And then for those of you who are in the public schools, for those of you who are teaching black history, movement history, revolutionary history, please send me an email at eric, at voices from the front lines and say, we want to use this show. We want to use voices as a regular educational program in our schools, in our community center. And we want to hear more voices like Frankie Adams Johnson. So finally, Frankie, I had your contact information. That was 2014. Can't believe that's eight years ago. I know you're still in Mississippi. I'd like to help you. You wanted to get your story out, and we'd like to help you every way we can. If anybody knows Frankie Adams Johnson, and Frankie, if you're listening, you can send me an email at eric at voicesfromthefrontlines. I promise I'll get right back to you. I will have you on the show again, and I'll do everything I can to help you, okay? Take good care of yourselves. And with that, we listen to the amazing voice of Frankie Adams Johnson. Let the sister speak for herself. We're here in Jackson, Mississippi, for the 50th anniversary of Freedom Summer, Mississippi Summer. And today, the guest is Frankie Adams Johnson, also known as Malika, or she says, Mississippi Frankie and New York Malika. So maybe we'll start the conversation there. Why do you use that?
1: I I tell you, during my um, movement experience, particularly when I um, went into New York and joined the Black Panther Party, I maintain Frankie. I refuse to change my name legally because I value my, my Mississippi roots. And so that's why I call myself Mississippi Frankie and New York Malika.
0: Sounds good. I mean, I think the whole question of identity is very important for black people and for black women, trying to figure out multiple identities and even multiple politics. So when did you first come to Mississippi?
1: I was born and raised here in Mississippi, in a little, very small town, right up the road, a piece about nine miles from here. And I was born in a little small town called Pocahontas, Mississippi. When my early childhood was in Pocahontas, Mississippi, and then my mother was tired of of the life of a sharecropper and uh, moved our family to Jackson, Mississippi, for a better, supposedly a better life. And uh, so it was here in Jackson that I became conscious of movement, of activities that was going on in the state of Mississippi, and a year prior to 1964, I was a student at one of the three black high schools here in Jackson, Mississippi. And during that time, and in 1863, there were a lot of black going on here in Mississippi. And one of the incidents that really got me involved as a part of the high school walkout, the Tougaloo College students did a sit-in at the Woolworth County and the high school students and respond to the brutality and uh, all of the brutality they experienced doing that sit-out. The high school students reorganized and worked out of each one of the respective high schools, man being uh, Brickley Junior
0: High School. Well, one of the things you just described, starting with the brutality of uh, sharecropping work, that the semi-slavery of the South in the 1960s, the Jim Crow system, was very brutal economically as well as politically. Did you experience a great deal of the perception of white terrorism?
1: It's really interesting. I grew up in such a system that most of the time we were very separated and I rarely saw saw white people. But I learned mostly about the brutality and the cruelty of white folks. I I often refer to the world that I grew up in. white side and they were the black side and so our parents were very very protective and first that uh, I knew up front and the fear of what it meant for us as children were doing the murder of Emmett Till's. Our parents were very, very concerned and very scared for, for their children and so and we were very, very protected as a young person. And most of the brutality that I know was from hearing my parents, my family members talk about what it meant to be a shit crop, how difficult that life was, and the brutality of, of what even our parents experienced being domestic workers.
0: Well, it's interesting. One of the reasons I hate Franklin Delano Roosevelt is because I think he was a really big racist. And he passed the National Relations Board, right? which protected workers, except for two types of workers. <laughs> agricultural workers and domestic workers.
2: Yes.
0: And those were both black people's jobs at the time. The so jobs that was were not There's the only jobs. So <laughs> that and the white South knew that. So the white South wanted to protect white workers and excluded her. So it was just interesting about how your mother left sharecropping to go for a quote better life and doing domestic work.
1: But that better life uh, that, that she came into, which Jackson was uh, still domestic work.
0: So walking out, for a black person in Mississippi, doing anything must have involved understanding there could be severe consequences.
1: It very much Right. So that
0: no one would think, oh, let's just walk out. Did wow. the students understand, well, if we walk out, there may be consequences, or were you don't too young? I
1: that, that, that even crossed our minds. The consequences, even uh, when we walked out of the high school, we knew why we were working out, and that students from the college had been brutalized, at the World War of was one of the most bloodiest uh, hmm. uh, sit-ins here in the Mississippi. And we knew that, and I know I, as a young person, it just never crossed my mind. We were arrested and put in garbage trucks, whatever vehicles, if you know, there were not enough paddy wagons to hold all of the students. So that experience, awakening that, that yes, the, the brutality was very, very real. And the place that we were housed, it was the uh, state fairground. And that is the place where we were housed, where the livestock was kept. Uh, uh, Mega Evers often referred to it as a concentration camp, and uh, so we lacked that experience too, being locked down in the concentration camp.
0: I am shocked at how influential Mega Evers was.
1: Very
2: you very
0: know, sure. I knew he was famous. I knew he had been assassinated. I understood he was head of the state NAACP. But the number of people, actual people, who are saying, Meg Evers drove me here, Maggie Evers taught me this. Uh,
1: Meg Evers was our Mississippi hero. There was Martin Luther King, but Maggie Evers was my first movement hero. One of the things that Maggie Evers was really very strong about was reaching out to younger people such as that and encouraging us and talking to us about our responsibility and our civic duty is to do something to make a difference. As a matter of fact, when we talk about brutality, I think The danger of what it meant to be involved in this movement was my awakening with the assassination of Mega Evers. As a matter of fact, I was with Mega Evers about 15 minutes before that assassination, because one of the things that he did after each math meeting was to make sure, since he involved us in, in movement activities, that he also was very protective and very concerned about our well-being and very concerned about our safety. And that night that he was assassinated, he actually had offered to bring me home. Mm -hmm. But someone else brought me home that lived near to where I was. But uh, it's just really interesting, and I often wonder What would have happened if he had driven me home? It was kind of a turning point for for me in terms of the nonviolent peace. I did not attend, many of us didn't attend his his funeral because when they assassinated him, we took to the street and I was actually incarcerated. And on that uh, march where I was incarcerated, that that was my first experience, or personally experiencing the the brutality. I was hit across my back uh, very brutally. My police officer and it actually brought the question a lot for me of uh, whether I really was nonviolent, the nonviolent concept of being hit across my back and uh, white racist police here in Jackson was the first man that had ever hit me. I was not hit by a father, uh, you know, so I reacted, I'm very grateful and thank God that there were other people on the paddy rag and, and, and uh, because my first reaction was to, to hit back. And the man did cock his rafer and I could have gotten shot down.
0: There. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Frankie, for telling me a lot of these stories. And One thing I was thinking about is that when I was at the SNCC reunion, a lot of women were talking about Jim Foreman encouraging them. And now, in this one, I'm hearing a lot of women talking about Medgar Evers encouraging them. Is it fair to say that both Jim Foreman and Medgar Evers were really consciously trying to build women's leadership?
1: This is a very churchy issue because this movement is pretty much a male-dominated movement. It has been a pretty much male-dominated movement. And Medgar Evers probably was more sensitive to to women. I did not know Jim Foreman that well, though. I would say that with Maggie Evers, Maggie Evers encouraged. Mm-hmm. The Jackson movement were headed up by females though. there. was a woman that was here at Tegeloo College where she was a part of the Woodruff sit- sit-in. Uh, Perlina Lewis. Perlina Lewis actually headed up the Jackson branch of all the youth movement and she was very influential in bringing people like myself that we were here in, in Mississippi and so she was a member of the neighborhood that I lived in. And so I would say that Megan Evans, you have Joyce and Derek Latner who was also mentored by Megan Evans. All those women played leadership role here in Jackson.
0: So what brought you to
1: SNCC? Being a student here at Tougaloo, I was um, moved by the movement in in, in 63. So when I got here on this campus as a pre-freshman, the movement was here. It was the hotbed of the movement. And so I actually was not a field secretary of SNCC. I was what is called a SNCC worker. and so. We were all considered I said, freedoms that we were fighting for freedom. We were freedom fighters and so organizational difference, uh, or the different organizations we all were working, there, particularly while Omega was alive. All of the organizations pretty much worked together. And I tell you, when I got here on this campus, I became more aware of the number of SNCC people and the number of SNCC people particularly from out of state. Uh-huh. and. Having been that inspired as an activist in 63, so it was just naturally that I would gravitate to the activists that was here on this campus, and as a matter of fact, being an activist here on this campus got me in in, in a lot of trouble because it distracted me from what I was here for, to be a young freshman in a pre-freshman program preparing me for college life and i was more involved with movement life and so i was not allowed to even attend the second section of the pre program
0: when you came in june and you were at tougaloo did you go out into communities trying to get people to register yes, yes, to vote yes
1: they were taking she was Like myself, most of the SNCC people are older than I, so they were taking the young people up to the Delta to do voter registration, uh, down to Macon, and so I got a chance to go up to, to Greenwood and do voter registration work in Greenwood.
0: How receptive were the people?
1: It was, the people were actually very, very receptive. It was amazing when we'd knock on doors. Because by the time I came along, because you know there, there were already people in the Dell doing voter registration work. We were here in Jackson doing voter registration, and I found the people to be very, very receptive. Yeah.
0: Well, what's interesting is I've, I've been an organizer my whole life, and like when I organized in Newark in the Black community. Not as many people, when you knocked on the door, were actually interested in getting involved. And one of the things that that I'm learning about this is that the question of the vote was in some way symbolized like an anti-colonial movement. People had been given the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment and was not being enforced. As I'm learning from this, the, the concept of voting really meant a lot. The black people is that right
1: absolutely because well you need to understand that it was so difficult for Black people to vote here and for how of difficult course. the test was and and the threat of voting you know people could lose their lives for voting people could get kicked off the farm for voting and van game was a prime example of, of the brutality she experienced for attempting to vote so i think once that people say safely that by uh, 1964, there was less fear because of, of the massive uh, organizing to get people registered and that people were retired. I came along, and so I got into the Delta, I found that people were much more receptive, uh, much more receptive than it was when Fannie Lou Hamer came along, which you can probably tell a different story. And then it also depends on where you were, because Ann Moody and book talks about how fearful people were, so see, so you got different parts of, you know depends on what part of town and how brutal. Stuff. So you see, there was brutality in is known as the Brutality State, but then you have some counties and some areas of Mississippi where it might be less violent. So uh, a person like Ann Moody, so she talks about how it was in her town, and how even if you were involved in the that she had gotten involved in the movement and, and, and how, how folks felt that that was a threat and, and that she was endangering the life of the people in that town. Now, right here in Jackson, I found it to be that people were not as receptive.
2: Well,
0: we're gonna hop ahead now. After the Mississippi Freedom Democratic sellout by the Democratic Party, I was in the Congress of Racial Equality at the time. Mm-hmm. A lot of people drew some very revolutionary conclusions by that. Some people felt that they still wanted to go back and try to make the Democratic Party work. But Stokely went on to build the Black Panther Party in Lowndes County with with John Hewlett. How did you end up in the Black Panther Party? in 1967
1: i left mississippi and i left mississippi for several reasons one my mother was very fearful because i had gotten really active the movement that had become my life and i probably went to sleep with freedom on my mind rose with freedom on my mind and uh, so she was fearful for me and, and uh was fearing that something was going to happen to me and my older sister had come home to visit and uh, my mother encouraged her to take me from Mississippi and once I arrived in New York as I say movement had become part of my life and I went into White Plains New York and as a young person in my head I just thought movement activities was going on all over the country and so I I started inquiring about, well, where's the movement? I said, like, where's the movement? And so she did introduce me to a culture nationalist group, and so I spent some time with them, but no direct action. I was looking for direct action. On one of those trips into the city, I saw these young men on the street, Doing the kind of of stuff that I was used to doing, you know, working among community people. And I inquired about, well, who are they? Black Panthers. And so I said, well, I want to be a part of that, (laughs) you know. And I inquired about how to form a Black Panther Party up in in the White Plains, New York. So that Sunday, uh, they said they would send some young men out to talk to us about how my sister and I, how to start a branch of a Black Panther Party. And so, actually, my sister and I started the first branch of the Black Panther Party in White Plains, New York, and, and so I became a full-fledged Black Panther. And contrary, you know, the the media has made it seem like Black Panther Party was about gun-toting revolutionaries and killing cops and so that's mostly what people know about the Black Panther Party. But what I liked about the Black Panther Party is that we were utilizing the same skills in terms of community organizing that I had learned from my father was sneaking my organizing skills here. I became really good at what I was doing in White Plains, and then the the leadership transferred me into Brooklyn, New York, and one of the really rough parts of New York City, Brownsville, New York. So one one of the biggest ghettos there and one of the roughest communities.
0: I just wanted to say one thing, Frankie, that there's such a terrible rewriting of history, destruction of revolutionary history. One of the things that people don't understand is how popular the Black Panther Party was. They sold 250,000 copies of the Black Panther Party in a week. They had chapters all over the place. And they had many, many supporters on the college campuses. When Huey Newton was speaking, when Eldridge Cleveland was speaking, when Kathleen Cleveland was speaking, maybe 500 people, thousands of people, now they make it look like a small group of oh, people no. marching around, you know, with, with the berets, and as they say, the black community didn't like the Panthers, you know. Oh, the black community loved the Panthers. The college
1: students were the major force in, in, in terms of helping us run the, the programs, so our breakfast program, early in the morning, they would get up and they would come to the office, you know, to so get work, and so I organized in Brooklyn and we, you know, had what we call political education classes, so you know, that students would come to our office for our political education class. So it was definitely not an isolated group that did not have any support at all. We had definitely community support, and they looked for us to resolve the uh, kind of atrocities that they were experiencing. And it was really interesting that when I, I left Mississippi, I knew segregation in Mississippi, I left White Plains and went to Brooklyn, New York. And that experience there, what I experienced in New York, particularly in Brooklyn, it was a rude awakening for me because I thought that things were really bad here in the Mississippi but the kind of uh, poverty and the way people were forced to live with rats and roaches and, which gave rise to, to, to many of our programs, you know particularly because children actually did go hungry. Children when I found there that children in New York went with roaches in their years and uh, being bitten by rats and which gave rise to our free health clinics because we treated a lot of children that actually would come there being bitten by rats. I did not know, even in our um, poverty here in Mississippi, I never knew what it was to go hungry. I just never knew what it was to go, because we lived off the land. I learned more about the suffering of black people, that kind of suffering that I saw black people experience in it. New York really was a real awakening for me that the north was not the great promised land that many of us here in the south, you know, about the great migration of moving to the north for a better life.
0: Well what you're describing it's helpful because, you know, sometimes I feel bad that I didn't go in the South. I was in core in the north. But as you're describing, in Harlem where I worked, in Newark where I worked Yes. It was pretty brutal. I mean, we used to have a slogan called No Rent for Rats." You know, we'd be on rent strike. And I mean, we literally had to go to war with the rats and roaches just to live. So, and then in the cold, cold during the winter, no heat. Yes. And no food, so. And children having to foot for themselves. I wrote a book called Katrina's Legacy, White Racism and Black Reconstruction in New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. Mm-hmm. And in that book, I'm talking about the great counter-revolution against what we did. And what I say is, what you don't understand is, they went after us because of how successful we were. And that's exactly
2: that Because
0: brilliant. the Panthers were brilliant and Fred Hampton was leading, I saw a film about this. 300 young kids at 6 in the morning doing calisthenics mm-hmm. in, in a high school. Yeah. So they came up with breakfast programs, they came up with health programs.
1: And educational, the educational programs, programs, so programs so the political
0: education programs, liberation yeah, yeah. schools. And the Panthers were attacked because of how successful they were. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what would you say, in a very short summary, drove you to seek the most militant, the most dangerous, the most effective, the most challenging forms of organization because between SNCC and the Black Panthers, you picked two amazing organizations. What inside of you do you think made you make that choice?
1: I, I know it inside me, made me make that choice. I um, could never come to grips that, being hit across my back, haunted I me. Mean, it still does. And I, and I, and I often, you know, I, that face just stayed in my mind, the face of this redneck cracker, hitting me across the back and feeling helpless that there was nothing I could do. And it made me question whether I truly was nonviolent, and I think, you know, they're, they're the the killing Megan Everson and killing the killing of Martin Luther King, and um, I, I, it really, I, 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 what drove me to the Panthers is that the Panthers were at least saying, we can, we will defend ourselves, and we will use the Constitution to do that, that we will shoot back.
0: Well, this is pretty moving. That was Frankie Adams Johnson, also known as Malika. A very fascinating story of a person truly dedicated to the movement. I think there are so many teachable moments in this. It's really been a pleasure to have you on Voices from the Frontline, KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, streaming live on the web at www.kpfk.org. And please check out our website, www.voicesfromfrontlines.com All power to the people. All power to the people. This is Eric Mann, the host of Voices from the Front Lines, Wake Up and Smell the Revolution. I want to thank Tammy Cardona Zambis for coming up with that subtitle. Voices from the Front Lines on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles is what we call movement-driven radio. The Voices from the Front Lines back in the day would be Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, and we'll have them on in terms of audio, Fannie Lou Hamer. But they're also, because I was an organizer with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee as an ally, with the Congress of Racial Equality as a field secretary, with the newer community union project as a community organizer, as Students for Democratic Society, as a regional director, but still organizing on the campuses. There are just great people out there on the front lines. So we're going to have a lot of great guests. Five of my favorite guests from the front lines are Cheney Martinez, with whom I work very closely as Director of Organizing at the Strategy Center. Barbara Lott-Holland, the Associate Director, who I've worked with for 25 or more years. You heard Emily Zamora, our lead student organizer. Akuna Uka, who's our lead volunteer. It's important to understand that all of us came through the Strategy Center as volunteers before we went on staff. So those five voices are going to be the voices from the front lines, especially the four of them, because they're out there leading struggles, as am I, actually. So the point is, one of my favorite voices from the front lines is that of Channing Martinez. I, I better like it, because we talk four or five hours a day. So uh, I want to give some introduction a little about Channing that's beyond the normal... Channing is young, gifted, and black. Channing ran for city council and did great in the 10th district. As we keep saying, 5% of the total vote, 10% of the black vote. Ran on a really great platform of no police in the schools and cut the police by 50%. It was counter-hegemonic organizing. He's also an excellent administrator, and it's important for the, those of you out there You can march, you can protest, but who's going to take out the garbage and who's going to sweep the floor and who's going to make sure that the bills are paid and who's going to make sure the lights are on or the lights are off and if something's broken, who's going to fix it? We think those are central things about being a good organizer. And I'll stay with one more story in this introduction, which is, I've always said one of the best things about being an organizer is sweeping the floor. Because I always sweep the floor, and I know Cheney Martinez sweeps the floor and Julian Lamb sweeps the floor. So the greatest floor sweeper of all was the great James Foreman, who's the executive director of SNCC. And he was at every time people would tell a story about him, they say, well, he was sweeping the floor while he was talking to me about Marxist Leninist theory. And of course, being black, Sometimes people would come up and see him sweeping the floor and say, Excuse me, do you know where Mr. Foreman is? And he would say, That's me. So I think Channing Martinez is in those traditions of being a very fine organizer, learning to supervise others, and helping me run the whole place. So with that long introduction for a long friendship, hi Channing. Hey, thanks so much for the introduction. It's glad to be back on the show. You'll be on many times in different incarnations. I realize I want to talk a lot about Belize and Garifuna. Sure. And that's so central to your identity. Tell us about Belize, your relationship to it, and then tell us about Garifuna within the Belizean cultural context.
3: Absolutely. Belize is one of the very few... What I would call black countries in Central America. I mean, it, the population is largely black, whether that's Garifuna, whether that's Creole, and other black cultures. It's also, I mean, even when you just walk down the street in Belize or catch the bus in the Belize, aside from it just being the blackest country, it's also by far the darkest skin tone mm. country. Even when you're not black, right? I mean, a lot of the Mayans, you would swear they're just light-skinned black people, right? right. Um, or really dark-skinned Latinx people. So that's one thing. I think the other thing I'm learning about Belize is that, like other Central American countries, it's going through a really major transitionary period where, at one point, the country's GDP was bananas. Um, and that's because of the United Fruit Company and all of that whole fiasco around bananas... Um, And like the United States and European and colonizing countries do, they just up and leave when they're under pressure. And so uh, when Colombia put the United Fruit Company under pressure and other forces put them under pressure, they just upped and left a bunch of countries. And so I have this weird experience where I went in 2004 and everywhere you went, you saw bananas growing, bananas growing, bananas growing. I was not able to get back into 2019, which in itself is, you know, it's shocking that it's right. taken me so long to get back. And it's sad to see that one of the things happened is that I was forced to drive across the country because my plane could not make it across the country <laughs> for different reasons. But through that, driving across the country, what I saw was vast, empty lands, just empty lands, right. where there used to be bananas. It's empty lines. What I learned is now the GDP is tourism, unfortunately. And that has its positives, but that also has its negatives, right? The positive is that in some places they're trying to figure out how do you keep the actual funds that are coming from tourism into the community. The negative is that it's tourism, right, Um, and so there's always a form of corruption that comes with that where companies are coming from outside of the country to then run the tourism and take that money out of the country, right? That's one. And then number two, then you're performing indigeneity for tourists, right, Um, as opposed to just carrying out your indigeneity as, as assigned by your ancestors. That's very interesting because then,
0: of course, the ingenuity becomes a commodity and you lose your own culture as you're performing it for the other person. Absolutely. And the second thing was just have to talk about the oppression of women and prostitution and child prostitution. And when I was in Bali, it was really scary because it's an island and the U.S. Navy was coming. And all these families were saying, welcome, welcome, welcome. And they had like little kids waiting. It was scary as hell. So a tourist culture by its very nature is is the worst kind of extractive. When you were back there in 2019, tell me more what you saw, what you thought. You know, because you said, I want to go back every year. Because it really touched you very deeply.
3: What did you see that you didn't see in the United States? Well, I went back twice. <laughs> that's that's the exciting thing. In 2019, we have this tradition in Garifuna where you honor your ancestors, and so in 2019, um, I had to go. You know, we we had heard about repercussions from not going, <laughs> which you might think are terribly unrealistic, um, and so we had to go, and including like people being you know slapped around by the ancestors. It sounds crazy, I know, but it actually happened to one of my aunts, and so I don't say. It's crazy. <laughs> we were like, "Oh no, we are not going through anything that they're going to come. They, we don't even know them. We don't see them. They can do whatever they want, and so we're going to go." <laughs> and so we went back in 2019, and it was a very moving experience. The whole family came to our village and came to the temple that's on my grandfather's land to celebrate the ancestors. And so that's one thing. There was a lot more community that was just so active when I went there, more than you see here in Los Angeles, right? We have community here, right? And obviously every community has its factions, but that was some level of, like, togetherness I've just not seen in a very long time in Los Angeles with the depletion of the black community. That's one.
0: Tell us the difference that we know Belize as a country, is a country, Garifuna is a culture and the people that span different countries, as I've known you for a while now. Tell us a little bit about the interrelationship and the distinction.
3: Sure. So Garifuna is a culture that sort of uh, came about, for me, I have to be honest, I'm unclear, but one story that I do know is that there were enslaved Africans that were going from Europe to Central America. And Along that journey, very close to Central America, there was a revolt on the boat in which slaves overtook the actual, you know, people sailing the boat. They were able to make it to Saint Vincent Island in the Grenadines. They settled on the island of Saint Vincent and Obviously, word always goes back to all of the colonizers. So word went back that the ship had been wrecked and there had been a revolt and uh, the British and the French basically went to war, took turns going to war with that island of the St. Vincent. At one point, they were doing a divide and conquer tactic where they were dividing the Arawak people from the Africans. But eventually, you know, Garifuna came through the fusion of those two cultures, right? Because you're on the same island and they created this language called Garifuna. And so that's the formation. It's a longer story, but as the Garifuna people fought with the British and the French, eventually the French threw them off of the island of St. Vincent. The Garifuna people were then exported to the island of Rotan, which is off the coast of Honduras. And from there, there's a grouping of Garifuna people that went to Belize because at that time, even before it was called Belize, it was British Honduras, but Belize was very lush with bunches and bunches of redwood um, mahogany trees. And so there was a call for workers to come log these trees. And so a bunch of Garifuna people um, moved to Belize, migrated to Belize and uh, stayed there. um, And we've been there ever since. It's a great story, and
0: each time you're getting clear on it as you're studying your own people's culture, you know, I mean, that's just a great story. I mean, the question of, of course, then being brought in to do extractive labor and tear down trees, and it's a miracle that any third world culture survives. You know, the uh, French destroyed the Haitian Revolution after the Haitians, the great punishment of anybody who rebels, you know. So now you're in South Central Los Angeles, and we'll sort of, tie up this part of the conversation. So now you're running for city council and you say, well, great, I'm from Belize and I'm from um, Garifuna and everybody's going to support my revolution. And how did it go? <laughs> uh,
3: that's a great question. I mean, I think a lot of people were really excited. I don't know that the Belize population really know what, knew what to do with me. I'll be quite honest. I mean... If I'm reading into everything that was going on, here you have someone, you know, to be quite frank, a lot of older elder folks were not, like, that's not the ideal leader, right? You have some someone that's talking about their black anger, if not, that's a whole unheard of right, right. And conversation. What's the third word? And oh yeah, getting there. I'm getting. (laughs) I'm sorry. Here you have someone that's talking about their black and Garifuna. That's you know that's a whole controversy in itself. And then if that's not enough, then he has to be with liking men and being gay and queer. And I haven't even began to dive into the concept of that and how that really feels in the community. But I know enough to be like a lot of people in the Garifuna community are either frankly just not wanting to talk publicly about it or just outright homophobic right and it's no coincidence that that's still criminalized in belize today right and so i went in thinking that there's going to be all this excitement and i did find some excitement among key leaders but the masses of folks did not come out like they would like if you said there was an asiatic concert hundreds of thousands of people would go if you said there's a aurelio martinez concert Thousands of people, not even just Garifuna, not even just Belize, people from around the world would be pouring out. But here you have this black queer Garifuna running on things that would actually help our people that are really revolutionary and counter-hegemonic. And we didn't get the amount of support that we had wished. Well, you know,
0: my theory of all this, and our theory on this, is uh, set the edge, split the room, and move the room to you. That's right. And... What we mean by that is there's no subculture right now that's revolutionary. That's Everybody right. who's working in whatever culture they're in will tell you as an organizer, what the hell? What are people thinking now? Because at a different point in history, you would have gotten a very different response. Right. So what's great about what you're doing is you can't change anything if you don't shake it and bang it and, and <laughs> say, right. hello, I'm your favorite queer Black, Garofuna, revolutionary, and they're going, what? But I was there, you know, I was there with your beautiful family, and you were respected. You were respected, Channing. I mean, but nodding and saying, cool, yeah. cool, cool. Mm-hmm. And they you know, we went around, ate the food and talked, you know, this is what organizers do. They're looking at you sort of like with this
3: pretty good.
0: I thought they were looking at like, I don't know, I'm not going to probably vote for them yet. But he sure got a lot of guts. And <laughs> and the conversation starts. You know, right. that's what people don't understand. Right. Is that whether it's Emily talking to students or you or Barbara? People have never heard it. You know, when Malcolm X Malcolm was not popular when he started. He was, you kidding? he scared the hell out of everybody. But he moved the room to him. That's right. that's right. And that's what you're doing. And I think you're doing a great job. Thank you. You really are a very respected. Member of the community, and we have plans to build more Belizean support for the Strategy Center, and come out to our block party on Saturday, December seventeenth, from twelve to four at thirty-five forty-six Martin Luther King. It's called Strategy and Soul Movement Center. Go to the corner and King and Crenshaw, and stop please at the light, and you'll look up and you'll see a beautiful billboard of the five of us, and it says, "Join the Bus Riders Union." 50% of all new jobs must go to black applicants. Stop US attacks on Africa and the Third World. Nobody talks like that. And it says Strategy and Soul Movement Center, join us. And we've been getting people calling in. So if you'd like to get to know more of the voices from the front lines people, we will all be there that Saturday. There'll be programs for the children, there'll be karaoke. We hope there'll be really good food from. Earl's on Crenshaw, dollar hot dogs, dollar fries, pretty much DOW everything. And you. And we need you to come out and bring your family and support the strategy center. And there'll be your voices from the front lines table as well. So Channing, you and I know each other so well, but that was the best I heard that story. Oh, thanks. Really. You know, it's like you, you just keep deepening the same reality and re-understand it better every time. Absolutely, through study, yeah. Through studies. So, if this is your first or second show of the new Voices from the Frontlines, Wake Up and Smell the Revolution show, I think you can see that we're trying to do very different kind of interviews and conversations and music and dance and we really want you to be part of this. And now I'm going to talk about raising money for KPFK and raising money for voices. So I'm going to as my friend, Julius Williams, says, everything is political. So let me talk politics to you about money. The first thing is a big thing that we now have this block of shows that are movement shows in the 8 o'clock slot. We don't just want voices to do well. We want all of them to do well. And we were having the hosts and guests of those shows on our show as well. But the station is in permanent crisis, structural crisis. And one of the structural crises is that this type of radio is declining in terms of audience. So we're excited to build it up. That's the point, that we can change that. And we're going to invest a lot in this show. We're really honored that Michael Novick, the general manager, offered us this 8 o'clock slot. And we're going to do a hell of a good job with it. So we want you to go on kpfk.org. And when you get there... We want you to toggle down to voices from the front lines, because we need the credit for whose money came in, because you're not calling in anymore during a time slot, at least for a while. So give us a holiday present. We've been asking people to contribute to the Strategy Center, but right now, we're focusing a lot on contributing to KPFK. So if you're a voices from the front lines listener, first time or last time, or many times, go on kpfk.org and make a generous contribution for the holidays. And I want to be able to tell Michael and the other staff and the other host that we killed it, you know, that our listeners really care and our listeners really contribute. And I'm going to talk about it every week because every week the lights have to go on and the rent has to be paid. Channing and I invest our own time, we're unpaid hosts, you could say, and we invest a lot of the Strategy Center's time. And we also will invest some of our own money. So KPFK.org in a couple weeks we'll go back to the famous 818-985-5735, but not today. So kick off the new voices from the front lines, wake up and smell the revolution, go on KPFK and make the most generous contribution that you can.
4: KPFK listeners, this is Barbara Lott-Holland, longtime resident of the Crenshaw District and Associate Director here at the Labor Community Strategy Center and the Bus Riders Union. It is with joy and much excitement that I come to you this morning to invite you to the Strategy and Soul Movement Center's holiday block party. When? Glad you asked. Saturday. December 17th from noon to 4 p.m. on the corner of King and Crenshaw, 3546 West Martin Luther King Boulevard. We will be celebrating the Strategy Center's 33rd birthday. We will also be celebrating our first larger-than-life billboard. We will also be celebrating the fight to stop the anti-black MTA policies. We will have food from Earl's Grill on Crenshaw. We will have activities for the children, young and old. We will have a live DJ and karaoke. We will have African-Cuban drumming with our master drummer, Richard Marquez. I look forward to seeing you come, bring your family and friends. I will see you there. Special Christmas for me
0: So, hi, voices, listeners. This is the next segment of the show. It's called Sing Along, and this time we're going to sing along with the Five Satins. During the 1950s, when rhythm and blues was really started, this was obviously one of the great songs of all time in 1956. So, for all of us who were alive in 1956, let alone teenagers, let's sing along with in the still of the night by the five
2: sentence
0: Voices from the Frontlines on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, and for all of you around the world, streaming on the World Wide Web at kpfk.org. And for those of you in South Africa, in Italy, in Brazil, celebrating Lula's amazing victory, uh, send us an email Eric at Voices from the Front Lines, Channing at the We'd love to hear from you. And we'll read your emails. So, back to Get Up and Dance. And today I dedicate this to all of us who suffer from depression and anxiety. And sometimes you just got to get out of your head when you're so low. It feels like you'll never get out. And of course, when you're up, it feels like you'll never be down. So, if you're down especially Get Up and Dance with our friends from ABBA, Dancing Queen.
2: Is near, and so I got to face the final good friend. I'll say clear and state my case. how with Jerm certain, I
3: believe. Thank you for tuning in to Voices from the Front Lines. Wake up and smell the revolution. At KPFK, we need your help. Call 818 985 5735 or visit www.kpfk.org to give a generous contribution to keep this show on the air. On Voices from the Frontlines, we need your help to spread the word. How many of your friends are listening to Voices from the Frontlines? Have you shared it with them? Have you sent them a text message? Have you sent them an email? Please go on to our website, www.voicesfromthefrontlines.com, or visit us on your local podcasting site to get the latest show and listen to it and send it to 10 friends. Only when we support our shows can we grow and build the movement. We believe in movement-sponsored radio and organizer-sponsored radio. So join us in our movement and spread the word in fighting for a movement on the front lines. Visit www.voicesfromthefrontlines.com times, I'm sure you
2: knew